0: Post loudness. Audio on the French. This is the open-ended podcast, where two best friends discuss tech, culture, but a side is ass. I'm James T. Green, and I just re-fell in love with Kiwi after not having it for roughly fifteen years.
1: And I'm Cher Vincent, and I am elated because Beyoncé came through last night. She did. She came through.
0: She did, and unfortunately so this good. will not be the episode that we talk about at all, but... No, it's coming though, guys. Don't worry. A couple weeks. <laughs> we, we need we need the time necessary to actually discuss this.
1: Yeah, we need to like process it, watch it at least five times.
0: But we do have a special guest here in the studio we today. We do. And we would like everyone to meet Angelica, I hope I'm gonna pronounce your last name right, Bastian.
1: Correct. Yes. Yay, we did it.
0: <laughs> how are you today?
2: I'm wonderful.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. So for people who don't know who you are, how do you fill your time?
2: Oh well, I tend to describe myself as a freelance essayist and critic. I write regularly for Vulture. I'm also writing T V recaps for the New York Times now. I write I've written for The Atlantic, Oprah Magazine.
1: How long have you been writing?
2: Seriously, as a critic, I feel I've only really committed to that form of writing in the past year and a half. But I fell in love with the act of writing when I was in high school, specifically screenwriting, though.
1: Oh, yeah. Did you write any screenplays? or?
2: That was my main thrust as a writer from high school into college. I did go to college for screenwriting. And then I just realized I was too much of a control freak to be a screenwriter and I didn't really feel artistically fulfilled by it. So I decided I wanted to take more control of my career and I really fell in love with film criticism in college as well. And so that's kind of got the ball rolling.
0: Did you feel like something was missing in film criticism that like your voice would be a better fit for it?
2: You know, looking at the publications I write for even... I'm usually the only Afro-Latina that's popping up on there. So I'm definitely, at least with my own culture and experiences, I'm definitely bringing something different to everything I write, which they need, frankly. (laughs) Um, They need to have more people of color writing for these publications. And I definitely think my perspective on film and television is a little different. Like, I, I don't tend to write about or give a damn about auteur theory. I tend to focus more on acting styles, costuming, Uh, production design and those aspects of film and television
0: film and tv writing is pretty white oh it's very. so like how do you feel like (laughs) your perspective brings like a lot of like a different vibe to it
2: well i think for one my language is very different different than a lot of the A lot of my peers, and I think part of the reason is, you know, they all kind of grew up in the same areas. They're all white dudes. Mm -hmm. They're all living in New York. Mm -hmm. And they tend to look at that as the center of things. They all love the same directors. They all hate the same other directors. Uh, You hurting
0: them. You hurting them today. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I've been kind of hearing a bit of a, excuse my pun, but a buzz around... This idea of pop culture writing mm-hmm. not being serious mm-hmm. and a lot of people giving criticism to BuzzFeed, especially the BuzzFeed reader mm-hmm. that just was announced and like this idea of pop culture writing being much more long form. Mm-hmm. So, like, how do you feel about, like, seriously taking pop culture writing to its next level?
2: Well, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do personally. Um and BuzzFeed actually does have some writers I really like. Um, Anne Helen Peterson, she writes a lot about gossip in a serious way and, and how we construct ideas of celebrity. And I think, though, you know, it's important to discuss pop culture seriously because it does greatly affect how we look at ourselves and the world around us. You know, we may think that stuff like captain america isn't all that important to how the world works but when you start to notice that most of the heroes in all these films are white it kind of tells us why people kind of look down on other people and people of color and that our stories aren't valued and i think it's important to have critics of color uh because the canon of film and television the what we look at as important shows and and films being defined only by white people is a problem because it ends up being like a self-perpetuating thing where if all the people defining culture are white and all the culture we're seeing is basically about white people, how do you expect things
1: to change? Speak on it. <laughs> Speak on it. The echo chamber needs to end. Yeah, it I'm needs just, to be shut
0: down. I'm sorry. Closed off. I just had to get some paper towels to like clean up all that tea that was just spilled. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I'm going to have to ask you this. So the whole Zoe D- Zaldana, how do you feel about that?
2: Zoe, Zoe, Zoe. As a fellow Dominican woman, I am appalled and ashamed to call you one of us. Where do we even begin with that? I mean, when that was announced, I was like, there's no way this is going to happen, right? There's no way, right? And then we start to see the pictures yeah. and the prosthetic nose. And then you look at all the producers, except what is the actor's name? I'm totally forgetting his name, who he co-stars um, in Nina with Zoe Saldana. And he's like the only black producer, but everybody else, director writer producers costume design prosthetic design like have they ever seen a black person you know and i want to support whenever like i see another afro latina i'm like yes and then zoe's just is like testing all my patience
1: consistently Indeed, Yeah, yeah it's a bummer
0: i was just curious about like the term afro latina is there a reason why you definitely like strongly identify with afro-latina
2: yeah it's it's funny because i really struggled uh with identifying with that side of my family my father is dominican i grew up in miami so latino culture is super important to me um but i can't stand my father um and he didn't have a really strong hand in raising me so for a while i just i didn't even attach that label to me and i felt like I shouldn't have. But as I've gotten older, I've really connected more with the culture and it's become really important to me. I mean, usually I just tell people I'm black because I am black. I'm blackety black. Like I'm proudly black. Um, But if people, you know, if I'm talking about myself or amongst other black people, I will say I'm black Latina or Afro-Latina. And I think that's also had a pretty big effect on how I write about pop culture and look at intersections more Mm -hmm. um, and look at how Afro-Latina actresses like Gina Torres rarely get to play Actual Afro Latinas, which is something a lot of, I think, Afro Latino actors talk about. Like they're usually just seen as black. And when they try out for Latino roles, they're told they don't look right for the role, which is so offensive on multiple <sighs> levels. People have a very, very narrow ideas about how people of color actually look like within different communities oh yeah for sure it's taken me a while i think to really come to my own sense of identity my mother is Mm -hmm. half white and half black and like her creole culture is really important to her it's important to me too i ended up my last name i that's not the one i was born with i ended up taking all my great-grandmother's maiden name because no one else in the family carries it Um, But it took me a while to kind of come to my own sense of identity because I think people usually look at me and they're like, well, she's a black girl. And so whenever I say Afro-Latina or I mention, like, my mother's background, like, people either don't believe me or they make some very annoying comments about how they think multiracial women are supposed to look like. I I don't know. I think people have this idea that multiracial women are, like, these exotic creatures with these slim waist and, like, big asses and just, like— they look like they walked off of I don't know some dude's yeah. wet dream. What yeah. is that with me and wet dream? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> which is like you know, there's so much beauty within these cultures, and mm-hmm. you know, people can look so different. I mean, my exactly. brother and I like don't look exactly the same. I don't look exactly the same as it, you know, my my mother does. I actually look mostly like my father's sisters. Yeah, because
1: like again, like I ha- my, my my sister and I, we don't look that much alike. Everyone thinks we do. not I, I don't see it honestly. Mm-hmm but regardless um it's just interesting how just in within families no matter what your bloodline is it's just different shades and colorism mm-hmm. is so different through the entire family so the idea of just you know this figure of any kind of image that you might think of a multiracial person is just so it's so narrow-minded yeah. it's awful Getting back to your writing, though, you've you mentioned you write for a lot of publications. So, like, how have you been able how have you been able to like, just manage the hustle that is freelancing?
2: I have no idea. No, um, <laughs> I think being very structured, organized and really planning your day, well, your weeks, you know, that's really important. I mean, I have a pretty detailed, uh, like, personal calendar and I have like a to do list that is color coded.
0: Uh, I do not play with this
2: you know like that's one of the reasons why I've been able to have I think my career is really taking off is just because of how professional I am I'm always telling people you know if editors like you and they can see you're professional and you you know if you're going to be late with a piece just tell them like they'll usually like understand if you have a relationship with them it's just about being on top of things and being honest and being likable that sounds so whack but it's really true no
1: it's totally true trust
2: me there are a lot of really bad film writers i won't name names but i could who have kept getting pretty consistent work because editors end up just liking them and they're professional even if they're not actually good at what they do they're all white men so you know take that with a grain of salt you just,
0: <laughs> you just answered what my follow-up question <laughs> was gonna be yeah. Yeah, so you feel like like likability is somehow in relation to freelance success?
2: Well, I think likability in terms of how the editors feel about you. Uh, I got to go to Ebert Fest last week and meet some of my editors from RogerEbert.com for the first time. And I was kind of nervous about that, but they all really liked me. And they're like, you know, we really like you. We're going to give you more work. And it's also because, I mean, my writing, this sounds sort of full of myself, but I honestly believe there's no pop culture writer out there writing like me. Likeability in terms of audience, I do not give a damn about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be very frank. Uh, because if I cared about that, I would not write like how I do. Mm-hmm. Because trust me, I read, I've read the comment sections before. People cannot stand me sometimes. I mean, I don't really care if people reading me think I'm a likable woman. As a woman, I don't think you should really care about being likable in any aspect of your life. I think you should care about being honest and true to yourself. So that's what I'm about. But in terms of relationships with my editors, I think that is important. You know, just being a nice person and being respectful. That's important on that level.
0: The thing that like, I really realized what was very interesting about your writing particularly is that like you really kind of hone in onto like your obsessions. That you have, mm-hmm. particularly, yeah. and I and I and I find that very interesting in your writing. Um, do you feel like that like kind of gives you an advantage versus like a lot of writers, which are pretty much like generalists?
2: Oh no, I definitely think that gives me an advantage, and I kind of refuse to take up projects unless I'm interested in it in some way. But that's ended up being a good thing. Um, I hate saying my brand, but it's ended up being a good thing uh, because editors kind of know me for what I can write about, so I have a very specific brand. So I got offered uh, to write about Prince recently because of his passing, because of how I write about masculinity a lot. That's definitely an obsession of mine. Um, And the way stars construct their image is an obsession of mine, and obviously writing about blackness. So the editor contacted me, Matt Zollersize, who's been very instrumental for my career and has really championed my work and because he knew I could pull that off so a lot of times editors will come to me because they know my obsessions and how I write about them and how I can bring a very nuanced specific intelligence about these obsessions to the table that someone who was just a generalist and like had like a Vague understanding probably couldn't.
0: Like what does a typical commenter or like <laughs> <laughs> responder like find a problem with?
2: Um, I love when I see people question my comic book knowledge. That's always fun.
0: Interesting. It's yeah. always
2: stupid, by the way. <laughs> um
0: I wonder why. <laughs>
2: Uh, but mostly you know especially after I had this piece come out in the Atlantic uh, about Mm. colorblind casting and that I think put me really in people's minds Um, but I got a lot of emails about how I was wrong about colorblind casting Mm. and race which is like you telling me as a black person this, like and these were sometimes white people like Mm. you know what colorblind casting is actually a really great thing and i'm like uh Mm. no read the article and leave me Mm. alone because like i'm not going to deal with this you know or sometimes when i criticize there's probably like several white women who cannot stand me because I'm not above criticizing their brand okay. of feminism, which is trash. You That's heard okay. it here, folks. Um, <laughs> That's okay. So I've had to like mute a lot of people like over those topics. Like over those topics these fake feminists who uh, really don't, in feminists. Yeah. Yeah. They do not <laughs> care about intersectionality. Are there though. any of
0: what you want to call out right now?
2: No. They know who they are. Oh, you know who I get real? This has been more recent. White men who think they know like feminism and women, but really don't.
0: Oh, you had a great name for that. Oh man, I think I, I think I call it, like fake woke gentrifiers.
2: Yes, yes, that's exa- <laughs> that's a perfect way. And I've actually had to deal with that on an editorial level, which is like a very strange experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to even mention what the articles are about because then you could easily find out what editors I'm talking about. <laughs> At the time, I had a uh, my day job as a dog walker. This wasn't too long ago. And I just, I took on too much. So I emailed the editors. Uh, One was a man, one was a woman. But I emailed them saying, look, I've taken on too much. I'm going to pull this piece because I do not put my name on things. I feel it's not good. Sure. So I'd rather pull the piece than ask for an extension because I don't know if I can pull it off. So our moments later, and I was on the way to record another podcast. Like, I'm looking on Twitter. Like I, I was like, why are my notifications blowing up? He... I mean, he subtweeted me. He didn't put my name, but he said, I just had two PLC writers pull out of the publication and I am very upset at how unprofessional they are. I'm totally going to burn these writers, which hmm, telling that you would even say that can you please recommend me other people of color writers? The funny part was, people were recommending me. And I was like, you can't escape my black ass because I'm (laughs) one of the best in the game. Um, And so what happened was I got pissed. So I ended up emailing him and the other editor and saying, you know what? I'm going to turn in the piece tomorrow night. And that piece is straight fire. So, and he couldn't even say anything about it at that point. And I'm writing another piece for them just because I was so pissed. So I was like, don't, even though... You did not put my handle on Twitter in there. I know you're talking about me, and I know you're such a man child. You probably would try to mess up my relationship with other editors. So you know what? Let me prove this man wrong. But he but he like is one of those white male editors who thinks he's woke and understands feminism, but then you would go on Twitter and say you would burn two people upcoming P- POC writers. And yeah. I don't know what was going on with the other writer, but I pulled out because, you know what, I had a day job. I took on too much. And being freelance, it's very easy to put so much on your plate to make ends meet mm-hmm. that you your self-care falls by the wayside and you're not able to really write that well. So, I was, you know, so that's why I ended up pulling out and I was honest about it. So it really upsets me he would do that on Twitter and not, you know, just send me an email. Actually reply to the email.
0: yeah so you mentioned like all of this kind of stress you had about like the freelance life, and I know I can totally relate with it um, but you also talk very openly and candidly about your mental health online like how do you feel like that conversation can be improved?
2: Well, I think for one, it's important for people to talk about their own experiences dealing you know with mental illness and and being on top of your self care uh, I think one issue I see a lot in these first person essays is a sense of sensationalism that comes with mental health um, that bothers me. And so I tend to not, I mean, I do write a lot about mental health, but usually through the lens of something else. Like I'm never someone to do like these very, 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 very personal, almost gratuitously personal first person essays because it's very easy, especially if you're early in your career, to kind of get typecast in a way. And so mm. that's all editors are going to expect from you. And it's very hard, especially as a woman, to get out of that weird circle of doing, like, these first-person, like, very, you know, open essays. So
0: so what do you mean by that? Like, what is an example of, like, a gratuitous first-person I don't know, look up, mental health essay?
2: What does Jezebel have on their front page?
0: Meh. Nah.
2: Probably there's something <laughs> on there. Oops, sorry. I guess I'm never going to write for them. But, um... <laughs> um I'm trying to think of specific examples. I mean, you know, sites like Exo Jane have a lot of stuff like that. You know Mm. what I mean? Like, this happened to me. My boyfriend, I don't know, like, they come up with the weirdest, weirdest things. You know, my boyfriend is really a cat in a human suit, or I don't know. Like, they come up with the weirdest. (laughs) And as a writer, you know, I'm always recommending to people to maybe not start off with those very open personal essays that talk about their sexual history and... You know, maybe, you know, even their mental illness history, even though I do write about that, I think it's better to say maybe use pop culture or some news event to look at those things um, because it can be very easy to to never escape writing those kind of things and, you know, not grow as a writer. Mm-hmm. One thing is, I mean, I'm always writing about pop culture in some way. So that tends to be the center of the piece rather than a personal experience, I'm also not that detailed with my personal experiences. Like I've mentioned, you know, in pieces uh, that I've dealt with sexual assault and, you know, I've been in the mental hospital and I'm diagnosed bipolar and have anxiety, but I don't really get that detailed. And it's because of that. Because I think if you focus so much on those details, that's what the audience is going to focus on and they're going to want more. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, when you... I think especially as a woman writer, they always expect so much of you. And so they're going to want so much more of your life if you focus on those details. So, I mean, I think it's useful to be honest and open to talk about things like sexual assault to mental illness, um, especially as a person of color, you know, because it's so rare that we see, you know, women of color being able to talk about those subjects um, mm-hmm. for major publications. but. I think for me, I just make sure not to focus on that as the center of the piece. Mm.
0: Do you feel like it's like almost a sense of warriorism?
2: When I was more active on madwomenandmuses.com, I mean, I would probably post some of the more personal stuff there. And I got a lot of um, feedback from other women of color about how interesting they thought it was that I called myself a mad woman and like really found a way to love aspects of myself that I used to hate. And so it is useful. I just feel like it's a very fine line. And it also doesn't really interest me. i rather, like, you know, deal with my issues through writing about different topics than always writing about myself. I can get bored. I'm freelance. Like, I'm always thinking and writing. Like, I don't want to write about myself all that much. I don't need that. Like, that's just not my style. It doesn't really interest me also stylistically to write like that. Like, I don't really need to write about it and publish it. And I don't, there's certain things that I kind of don't want to be on the Internet
1: yeah I feel I I get that there you need that you need that boundary
2: yeah you need I think it's very easy with being freelance to not have boundaries between life Mm. um you know because and not take care of yourself and not think you know what is the long-standing effect of this piece I'm writing on my life
0: do you have any hard boundaries
2: probably I won't ever write in detail about the assault I dealt with last year um I probably won't ever in detail write about My relationship with my mother, which is very strained, or the domestic violence she dealt with and that I witnessed. There's just certain, like, very touchy subjects that I'm just not interested. I'll probably fictionalize them because I do write fiction. And then probably people who know me be like, girl, like, why are you writing about your mother like this? Um, (laughs) But that's definitely a hard boundary. And also, I'm not really into, like, on a different level, I'm not really into doing think pieces um because that's also you know uninteresting to me creatively mm-hmm. um so
0: what's the so what's the line between a think piece and a cultural critic
2: depth and nuance a think piece usually has to be pumped out really fast to kind of go along with the latest news cycle being an actual culture critic your work will last beyond the news cycle beyond whatever tv show you're writing about and, you know, I write a lot of TV recaps, and it's always my goal for whatever recap I write. It doesn't always work out because, you know, those do have to be pumped out really quickly. But I want them to stand as essays on their own. It's a it's a fine line. Um, but doing this, you know, I don't consider anything I've really written um, to be think pieces because I'm coming at it from a very specific perspective. Um, I'm coming at it from the perspective that, you know i'm not gonna teach you about these buzzy new things that just happened and whoa isn't that messed up
0: so we touched a little bit earlier on your obsessions and i kind of want to dig into those a little bit further because i just feel like they are so specific <laughs> yeah. that it makes your writing very interesting so first you know and this is where i'll let like Y'all kind of go at it. Um, <laughs> Betty Davis.
1: Oh, Betty Davis.
2: Queen, queen of my life. When, She's so great. Oh my God. When I was a teenager, I thought I was the reincarnated version of her. like Because she died... Not well, like I was born before she died, but I still count it. I still feel like I inherited her spirit and her like weird romantic issues. I swear to God, I connect with her so much. It's weird. I love her. She's an amazing actress. I like to describe her as Brando before Brando. That's how powerful she was to Mm. the history of American film acting.
1: Yeah, I was introduced with her because my mother, she was obsessed with her. So it kind of just about passed down to me. My mother mm. put me in front of the telev- television with a few DVDs. She's like, here, you have to watch this in order to be a woman. And like, I think instead of like having the birds and the bees conversation with me, she like, put me in front of like, a couple of Betty Davis movies. She's like, here you go. This is how to be a woman. Essentially, it's Betty it, Davis. So um, I guess All About These is probably my favorite just because... I know because I, I, that's the one I wa- I, we watched more. Yeah. But I like her um I really like her mid period more mm. than her early period. Me
2: too. I I there's some of her early like when she was really like queen of hollywood mm-hmm. for Warner Brothers that I really love like I do love The Letter um which is in her all her collaborations with William Wilder. Um not Wilder. Um Wilder. Um The Letter Uh the little foxes, Jezebel. That's out of order. It was Jezebel. Jezebel. Oh God. She's Damn
1: Jezebel. Jezebel, So Jezebel, Jezebel.
2: Uh yeah, so Jezebel was great. The letter I fell in love with because it's a noir. And Mm -hmm. The Little Foxes, because it's basically like... It's one of my
1: mom's favorites a lot, actually. She loves that one. Yeah,
2: Little Foxes is basically Southern Mommy issues the movie. Like, I love it. (laughs) She's just such a fascinating actress, and I just feel like we'll probably never have someone like her again. No. Part of it is just because of how Hollywood works, and part of it was just her artistry and what she would bring to the table as an actress.
1: Keanu Reeves. I
2: don't know when I fell in love with Keanu, but I think it's always been with me, because he's been, you know, he became famous, like... Before I was born, so he's kind of always been a star. You know, I'm, I've always loved him, but his, I've only become obsessed with him recently. And I don't really know what—it was John Wick. I think John Wick elevated it from, oh, I hear- man, I love him as an actor to hot damn.
1: I still haven't seen that movie yet, and I really want to just because this premise is so, so ridiculous and amazing. It
2: is it is like, he literally amazing. slaughters yeah. everyone
1: in his path because someone killed his dog, which is, which is, which is like me. <laughs> I would do that. I will go and like fight anybody if they fucking with my dog. It's like, yep. Yeah. I mean mean, someone
2: did something to my cat oh god I don't even want to I've burned Chicago down (laughs) Great Chicago Fire 2016 Um, the fight choreography and that is amazing the world building is some of the best world building I have seen in a film in a long time like Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of comic book movies actually don't have that great world building because I think they rely on people probably understanding the comics better than they actually do Mm -hmm. Um, but the world building in John Wick is really fascinating and it hints at just a much larger world than you see, so that's why I was like, "Oh, it totally makes sense." You could do a sequel, even though it's not—it didn't end like, "Oh, we're obviously going to have a sequel." <laughs> um But it's in his performance, I think it distills some of the best aspects of who he is as a performer. Because mm. um, he there's a interesting preoccupation um with loneliness throughout his work, which I, I think that's one of the reasons why I've been really drawn to him because it feels authentic. Yeah, how he grapples with loneliness in movies and. You know, I wrote a piece about him for Brightwall Dark Room and was cross posted on RogerEbert.com. And the first line says something like, you know, he missed his calling as a silent actor because I really feel like him in silent film would.
1: I could totally see that. Yeah, because
2: he just has such an amazing physicality.
1: Certainly just, just his stature even. Yeah. He's just a tall man. And then he has these very expressive facial expressions. Just, yeah. He's very expressive, but, in a, but it's subtle.
2: Exactly. It, there's a subtlety to it that's really fascinating. And I think people, some of, one of the reasons why I think people probably don't think of him as a good actor is because of how he uses his voice in a way that's not how a lot of other actors in modern times use their voice. Mm-hmm. And he's like the exact opposite of a method actor, um, which I find more fascinating. Because that's, you know, looking at acting styles throughout, you know, film history, I've always been drawn to people from old hollywood like betty davis because their roles mix our expectations of their image and then can also surprise us because of that and contradict it uh, and i th- think i see that a lot in his work um yeah i just love kian Ke- also i think he's hot like and he's aged really yeah, he's well good, like yeah. on a shallow level yeah, like yeah, he man some scenes in john wick i was like you know i don't like when people you know when women want a dude to the daddy thing? I never got that. But if Keanu Reeves asked me to call him daddy, I would. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I'd break my one rule for <laughs> Keanu.
1: Film Noir, I loved, again, because I was raised on TCM. It's literally, like, when I go to my parents' house, that's usually on.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. It's just
1: always on, because my mother loves that shit. That's all she watches and cares for. So, like, um, what, drew you, what drew you to Film Noir?
2: I think I got drew, drawn to film noir probably as a teenager because mm-hmm. I was also reading a lot of it. Like I'm a huge fan of writers like David Goodis and um, Jim Thompson is one of my favorite writers and Raymond Chandler. Like, and they also have a writing style I find really fascinating. They can mm-hmm. do so much with so little. Um, But as a genre, I think film noir is one of the most powerful American genres there is. And it's a shame that I feel like a lot of directors since its classic period get really hung up on the style of it and not how political of a genre it is. Exactly. Which uh, I think one of the best pieces I've written was for Vulture last summer about how I feel film noir has atrophied as a genre. Um, And it was also my way to talk a little crap about uh, True Detective. Uh,
0: (laughs) Okay, so as somebody who knows not that much about film noir, why should I be paying attention to it?
2: Hmm, That's a really good question. Well, let me preface it to say, noir is powerful because of how it commented on race, gender, how we relate to each other as people and it's a very American genre and it was completely a reaction to World War II and the changing like racial and gender politics so that's one of the reasons why I'm always trying to get people of color to to watch more noir and I mean the best modern noirs center around people of color just you know so I'm going to read from the very end of a piece I wrote for Vulture last summer about true detective season two and how it represents the ways that noir has atrophied but the last paragraph this is what i said this is the perfect time for a genre that sharpened its teeth on social unease america is built on crime and we're living in a time where that is shockingly evident gender and sexuality are being upended and redefined people of color are abused by the same police forces meant to protect them access to technology And the knowledge it provides has only made us more paranoid. We need more characters and settings and voices that represent what it means to be the other, rather than reflexive adoptions of the emptiest tropes of the genre. Instead of turning away from the shadows of modern America, with noir, filmmakers and critics can take a deeper look. So that's essentially what's powerful about noir it's obsessed with the idea of the other. And I feel like this is a perfect time for noir to be reawakened. Mm. And I think it's a genre that people. If you pay attention to it, and I think it's worth paying attention to, you can learn so much about American culture, just tracking the changes of noir and how it got it got really bitter in the 50s. Because that's, you know, people were learning that, you know, after what felt like a good time after World War II ended and America was very prosperous, they're realizing the American dream was an utter lie. The genre really comments on American culture and and the lie at the center of the American dream mm-hmm. and i think speaks directly to the human condition in a way that other genres rarely tap into that power with such consistency
1: so thank you so much angelica for stopping through for coming through um we appreciate you and i know for sure that i will continue reading your stuff where can they find you online
2: best way to look me up is on my twitter because my my website is madwomenandmuses.com which is sporadically updated But if you follow me on Twitter, which is Angelica Bastien, A-N-G-E-L-I-C-A-B-A-S-T-I-E-N, there you go, um, you'll see most of my work. Because I'm very active on there, even when I shouldn't be on there.
1: Isn't that how Twitter is, though? Isn't
2: it wonderful? It's such a great time zapper. It's
1: great. Thank you so much, Angelica. Thank you. So it's open mic time again. If you don't know what open mic is, it is when we debate with our guests about something we just talked about. The first mic, the first debate is going to be me and Angelica and then Angelica and James and then James and then me doing with Angelica. Me and Angelica are going to be debating about something we didn't really talk about, but I know, um, she gave me one of my few, I think one of two tarot card readings ever in my life want to talk about something else um, palm reading which i have a little more experience with just because my mother has um, done palm reading for a long time so um we have timer on the clock
0: starting
1: now so tarot card readings why did you decide to do tarot card readings is there like the format as far as like reading the future or not? Uh, i'm not
2: necessarily interested in tarot for reading the future i think they're a fascinating storytelling tool and creative tool. Usually, if I have a kink in a piece, I I do a read for myself.
1: Interesting, yeah. Cause I like I think when I'm like feeling kind of anxious about just my personal future, I definitely look at my hands just because I use them so much and mm-hmm. everything I do. And um, I'm 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 a desk so mm-hmm. like I don't really so, like tarot card I mean, palm reading it's like you know your dominant hand is the one that you use the mm-hmm. most as far as reading goes but like I use I alternate interesting so it's like I don't really know what's in my hands and just seeing it and just like studying it it's always been really interesting to me but I don't know I think with tarot cards I've always had really terrible experience with them they've always <laughs> been horrible and I just like I don't know I don't want to like uh, I don't know. It's just for me, reading that, it gives me so much more anxiety than actually reading my hands.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's that's
1: a personal <laughs> thing. It's just maybe, 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 maybe they're actually reading the future. I don't know. But...
2: <laughs> God, like, I hope not. My last few were some weird cards I was getting. Exactly. I, I, you know, I always tell people you can take and leave what you want. Same with horoscopes. I'm always, like, mm-hmm. trying to do people's birth charts because I'm a weirdo.
1: No, that's um, great. it's cool.
2: So, I mean, I think why I'm drawn to tarot reading, and I think it's actually become really popular recently, but, you know, with certain very creative white women usually. But, um... Uh, and, and I actually got interviewed for a piece uh, about tarot reading and you know one of the benefits I'm always telling other creatives is it's very just the visuals are very inspiring mm-hmm. and it's a very good creative tool to make you think about life differently and what what you're dealing with differently and can give you a really new perspective but it's also very easy to kind of get like maybe like too wrapped up in those details so that's like the downside <laughs> so yeah <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> that goes by so fast. <laughs> I know two minutes. Two minutes. Wow, two All minutes right. is
1: done. I was trying to finish my sentence, but then I lost it because you were doing this. Working, <laughs> so, so our next debate is going to be with James and Angelica, and they're debating something that you know I'm really excited to see the results. Hot dogs, Catch up versus Chicago style. This
0: is this is contentious. People will shut up, fight people. We'll start the timer in three two one so why on earth would you decide to put such an acidic sour mess of a product on top of a beautiful hot dog why on earth would you completely fuck that up
2: because it complements the flavors of the actual dog ketchup is like something a five-year-old would like because it's sort of sweet it's for people who don't have refined palate like mine. You
0: know what, I think it's just because (laughs) you're eating the wrong type of ketchup first of all. Like, there's multiple different types of ketchup. There Mm. are sweet ketchups, there Mm. are sour ketchups, there are spicy ketchups, which I feel can be a complete, complete substitute for any kind of mustard mainly because mustard it just takes over every fucking thing that you have i mean like if i wanted mustard i put salt on my dog and that's what i do if i want something like that i'm gonna put uh fucking banana peppers on there
2: what are you do, using that heinz yellow mustard that people <laughs> like you get in the lunch line <laughs> like at grade school like there's so many different types of mustard i'm a mustard snob
0: okay what kind of mustard i mean like there's well, really I only make, a couple like I, mean, I
2: also like make my own like mustard i'm one of those bougie people i'm sorry um, <laughs> but like. Even even bespoke. with...
1: Yeah. Artisan. <laughs> artisanal
0: <laughs> mustard-having ass. Artisanal
2: mustard-having ass. I'm going to add that to my Twitter bio. Um Like, even within specific kinds of mustard, like, I can probably break down different kinds of honey mustard. That's how, like... See,
0: see, I was hoping you'd bring up honey mustard, because honey mustard is a reaction to ketchup. Because, obviously, people want ketchup, but they're not enough to say, you know what, I want ketchup. No, I want a honey mustard.
2: No, because... Yeah. Yeah, ketchup is kind of... For me, it's 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 kind of gross. Like, I don't even know why I have such a strong reaction to... Maybe I had some incident in my childhood involving ketchup. But I love honey mustard. And, like, when I was younger, like, I could break down what... Like, the ratio to honey and mustard at different restaurants. Like, TGI Fridays, for whatever reason. Like, I got obsessed with their honey mustard as a kid. There's this I'll one... I that honey mustard. Yeah. yeah. And there was a one time they did not have that honey mustard, and I... Was not having it. Well,
0: since I have the timer, I'm just going to decide that I won because obviously nope. honey mustard is ketchup. And <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god, James, you're
0: trash. All right,
2: trash incarnate like ketchup.
1: <laughs> trash. All right. Yeah, it's the
0: ketchup patriarchy, so <laughs> oh it's just fine. <laughs> oh you know, rice <laughs> on a cracker. Oh my god.
1: The my... <laughs> oh my god, James, you're terrible, terrible, terrible. All right and our last debate is angelica versus open-ended we're gonna talk about superhero movies why they matter apparently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was the best like sly shake <laughs> which which i love <laughs> which i love so um Shit, that was like top moment right there
1: so um yeah good good put, put three minutes on the clock for that one because um it's a little extra little me a little more me in this song <laughs> And uh, whenever the timer is ready?
0: The r- timer is ready now.
1: Okay. So, crowds on table, I've only watched a couple of superhero movies. I watched, I guess, all the original Spider-Man movies, some of the original Superman movies. And then as far as like, the new Avenger stuff, I've only watched Thor. That is it. And <laughs> um, I haven't watched Any of the Iron Man movies, haven't watched any of those movies. And I kind of just, I've gone, it's gone so long for me to not watch those movies. Like, meh, I don't really need it. So tell me
0: why I should care.
2: I think you should care about anything that's dominating culture as much as superhero movies are.
0: You can't throw the culture card on me.
2: I mean, no, it's important as a viewer, as a writer, why these movies are getting so much money.
0: Why do you think they're getting so much money? I
2: think part of it is. You know, like there are genres that just kind of become in vogue. The Westerns were in vogue for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Superhero genre is in a lot of ways an extension of these larger than life archetypes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's getting a lot of money because they, you know, they have so many properties they can base them on. They have, you know, built in audiences, so to speak. they're able to attract a lot of major stars and not pay them as much as they probably should be paid. Uh, Ooh, burp, burp. Sorry, <laughs> Marvel, you're trash. Pay your <laughs> actors and writers and directors. Thank you.
0: Um, I have a theory. I have a theory that like these superhero movies are becoming popular because it is a form of escapism to like the nth degree, mm-hmm. especially since the world is mad fucked up. Especially for people our age right now. Oh, definitely. So they're like, man, if I can just for two hours see people blow shit up and people throw other people everywhere and kill people. Mm-hmm and not have to think about, like, the economy. Consequences, Yeah, sure, 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 Yeah, because, yeah.
1: like, I mean, I always found them as a reaction to, like, terrorism because, like, they started right after 9-11 oh. as far as getting, like, screenwriting. up. Really? Like, yeah, because, like, the first...
2: Well, the, the yeah, first, the boom for Yeah, them. the
1: boom, yeah, the yeah. boom of them started, like, as far as, like, always happened in the last 10 to 15 years have been, like, the first Spider-Man came out about a year after 9-11. So you have, like, all of these intense, you know, you know, superhero movies rising against, you know, whatever, and it's just this weird, like, connotation that I felt was like, I don't know what's happening here, and... It's uh, like America, America, <laughs> <Yeah>. and
0: <laughs> the yeah. white
2: good guy always. Yeah, wins. exactly.
1: That's precisely it. And like, I, and like,
0: I think that's why I don't like superhero yeah, movies. Yeah,
1: and <laughs> then like, you know, I really didn't like the fact that like Jimmy Fox was like a was a villain in, and a terrible villain in like the in the in the other Spider-Man, the one that when it was rebooted after like barely ten years had passed. He
2: it's being rebooted again. The yep. joys of yep. Spider-Man. I yep. wish they would let that character just age. I know. This teenage
1: ass. No one wants to see that. <laughs> I know. It's boring so yeah it's just one of those things that i just never really um we to because i didn't see myself in it and um i thought they were fun but again just like i don't know i can't
0: it are just, there any black women superheroes that we should be knowing about in the universe
2: uh yes okay, um like, uh, misty knight vixen you know maybe one day Somewhere in a very distant future, Storm will actually be written and played well.
1: Yeah. Ooh. That's another thing, too. expand. Yeah, X-Men, I completely don't even, I, like, I, I watched the first one, I think. I don't remember it was so long ago. And yeah, don't I, watch the rest. Yeah, exactly. So it just, yeah, stuff like that that I just didn't see enough visibility that made me want to, like, participate in watching. So it's like, meh, maybe not. Maybe not for me. Hey, James.
0: Hey, Cher. You know what time it is?
1: It's open, it's open call time. It's open call time. It's open. It's open call time. It is. Open
0: call. So we always started off with our guests. So Angelica, what are you feeling this week?
2: I am feeling the fact that Greg Rucca is back writing for Wonder Woman. My girl. Finally, Greg Rucker wrote the best modern Wonder Woman run. A while ago, um, over like maybe, yeah, a little over 10 years ago, and best understands the character, unlike the rest of DC Comics, who is
1: trash um but like you're wearing watch in, in the studio right now she's wearing this excellent excellent woman a wonder woman t-shirt
2: <laughs> i love wonder woman so i'm really happy she has a writer now that understands her and respects the fact that her mythos is very female centered and very weird and wonderful and feminist and not white feminist wonder woman at her best is intersectional greg rucka gets that
1: mm, exciting Ooh, snaps, I, snaps. I, I that might be a movie that i might watch in the theaters so
2: if they don't get that right, you will see me on the news because I got arrested <laughs> for killing a bunch of producers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. I'm here for it.
0: Okay, so share. Oh man. What are you feeling now?
1: Um another woman who's getting her snaps this week. Harriet Tubman. <laughs> She's Woo-hoo! gonna be in the dub, son. She'll be in the into dub. Oh tub. I'm
0: saying. Call them
1: tubs now. You're supposed to- on my teeth and my how about you james what's what's you what's your open call this week
0: um so my open call this week is actually a podcast that i thoroughly enjoy way too much and they just had a really great episode and that is millennial so the latest episode of Millennial, uh, if you don't know, it's this podcast where um, the host Megan Tan, she pretty much maneuvers her 20s in real time, and it's like a storytelling-based podcast. And this episode, she talked about how she was trying to battle between trying to have like her jobby job and actually like going off to do her own thing. And it got me in all my feels because I was in that exact same position almost a year ago today and I was just like oh my god you got me you feel me and also (laughs) and like yeah it's just the perfect podcast so it's like one of the few where whenever I see a new episode I will just stop everything and listen to it Episode fifty one. We did it, James. We did it again. We did
1: it. I keep, we keep on doing it, and now we're like in the back half of this, you know, hundred. Now we're just gonna do it, right? We're gonna the do it. Back
0: a- half of this a hundred. I feel like that's like kind of weird Um, that's weird to say but like
1: we're we're like we're 50 I mean like we gotta do 50 more now
0: yeah and of course we couldn't have done this without Angelica so thank thank you you so much, Angelica, for
1: joining us us. we appreciate you and your presence it is neat
0: so we want to give a special shout out to the Chicago Podcast Co-op for letting us be a part of their network Thank you. And we want to give a shout out to one of the shows on there, and that is Right Club. Want to tell me about Right Club, sir? sure? Sure.
1: Right Club is a literature as blood sport to opposing writers, to opposing ideas, each fighting for deathless glory. Hosted by polar opposites Ian Backnap and Lindsay Moscato that is right club here on the cpc
0: yeah we want to give a special thanks to cards and humanity thanks, for Karts. letting us use their space mm-hmm. um the script of course was written by Sharon myself and who did the music
1: U plus one f60c which is the unicode for the blizzard emoji and it's james musicals night project
0: you can make sure to rate us on itunes recommend us on overcast or be the needle and thread to us on stitcher on the stitch you can also donate to us and become a member. And how can you do that, Cher?
1: You can go to openended.fm slash donate to send us over some greens and help pay us our bills. Or you become a member on our Patreon at patreon.com slash openended, where you can start at $1 a month. And we will probably, not probably, we are soon going to start like actually having like initiatives on there so um, we can get you guys to send us over some greens.
0: Yeah, I definitely love that. So, also, you can contact us where
1: you can go to ask.fm/openended slash to uh, send us some questions over to our ask hole. We like asking, we like answering questions. We did a lot of those last weekend, and uh, we'd love to do some more. And you can also, always also use the hashtag #AskOpenEnded on Twitter. If you want to send us some feedback for anything, um, mostly, or you know what? Scratch that. All good stuff. We don't take shitty yes. shade here. So <laughs> if you have anything good to say about us, you can go to openended.fm slash contact or hit us up on e- our email at theopenendedpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I think
0: we should start calling that the Bastian Doctrine. Oh, yeah. just only say good stuff.
1: Only good stuff. All <laughs> good stuff, yeah. And, no petty shade here.
0: And we have a special guest next week.
1: Yes, Lauren Rhodes, the doctor director of education at Jane Hall Museum at the University of Illinois at Chicago. We're excited to have her, and uh, it's going to be a good time.
0: Yeah, and as always, this has been a production of Post Loudness, a collective of independent audio shows by people of color, women, and queer-identified hosts. And as we say at the end of every episode... Keep things open-ended. Oh my god, Damn. we did it! We did it! Wow! That was a there hell was of an tits. episode that was, that was such a good episode It was fun though
1: yeah. Man, I was loud this good. though Woo. That was like good. Fuck Karen, fuck Karen Fuck Karen, Yay. yeah fuck Karen. Hey Cher
0: Hey How's it going? It's
1: good This is opening a podcast You're Oh listening. wait Yeah, I just yeah, I, you, I completely just, fucked up Yo, yeah, I, I brought it back to the old Old front. Old up front <laughs> <laughs> That was like the super, That was like
0: first yeah and yeah holy shit yeah i was like okay what we're doing this again just happened. i you know, love it i, I mean think it was, i think it was, it was super was, casual it was great I, yeah because i was like in the mindset of episode 50 which is like a
1: flashback <laughs> episode. <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah we just did like a retrospective episode because it was our 50th episode i am embarrassed okay so, so we did like a clip show
0: we're like yeah holy there, shit
1: all the past episodes and we've grown so far
0: okay blah, blah, blah. all right we will try this again. Yeah. The worst. Damn, <laughs> right. That was good. All right, five, four. This is the open-ended podcast. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, am I forgetting it? I think I think I'm, I think I'm embarrassed because you're you're in here. So. oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ! You know what? I'll do it. Yeah, can you start it off? Yeah, what's okay, it, what's her it? thing? <laughs> um, it's it's like. It, you know, you know, our thing, right? I, this you the open ended podcast. Uh, I just lost it. A
1: tech podcast between two best friends constantly disagreeing. Fuck. Oh
0: what was our fucking. Oh, I don't front? know. How did you, I forget this? I don't know. You were always saying. my brain just shut off. Right Jesus no. Christ. Um,
1: Do we have it written somewhere? No, because you, you already said it. Oh. This
0: is the open ended podcast where oh yeah we're two best friends discuss tech culture with class fast yeah that's it okay. that's it oh my god right. okay. sorry <laughs> okay. sorry about that I it just... sounds so much better after it's finished yeah <laughs> well luckily editing is okay. fine alright yeah five four three